open them to Psalm chapter 19. If you please find Psalm chapter 19. Uh, several weeks ago in our Sunday morning forum class, I had a question about how and where do dinosaurs fit into the Genesis account of creation, Genesis chapter 1. Now, I'm not going to talk about dinosaurs tonight, but um, that's a very good question. Because if you have children that are in public school, sooner or later you're going to be faced with that question because your children are going to find out that what they hear in public school is not the same thing that they hear in Sunday school. And since the uh, middle to late 19th century, the teaching of evolution has become more and more pervasive in our society until today... There's just almost no question among scientists that evolution, uh, theory of evolution is actually based in fact. And the evolutionary scientists have taken that leap from theory to fact without requiring what scientists usually require, and that's empirical evidence that this has happened. And that's something that they don't have. Now, I've stated many times before that if evolution is true, then the Bible can't be true. And if the Bible is true, then evolution can't be true. The Bible teaches us about a creator, one who created the entire world. And if there is a creator, then he was certainly able to do it in a sixth Uh, day period. That's nothing too hard for God. Of course, he did that. Um, The problem, though, actually lies with the scientist because the scientist knows that if he admits that there is a God and God has created all things, then eventually you have to come to the conclusion that we must submit ourselves to that God. Now, we could go to Genesis chapter 1 tonight, and I could speak from there, but I don't want to do that. I mean, that's a wonderful retelling of God's creation of the world. But what I want to do this evening is to speak to you from Psalm chapter 19. And in this psalm, uh, David gives us an observation about the reality of God, and he tells us that God is revealed from two very powerful perspectives. Now, I'd like you to stand, please, as we read God's Word tonight. We're looking at Psalm chapter 19. I don't want to begin reading with verse number 1. We'll read down to verse number 11. And David writes here, "...the heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork." Day unto day uttereth speech, and night unto night showeth knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them hath he set a tabernacle for the sun, which is as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, and rejoiceth as a strong man to run a race. His going forth is from the end of heaven, and his circuit unto the ends of it, and there is nothing hid from the heat thereof. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is thy servant warned, and in keeping of them there is great reward. Let's pray. Lord, as we come to you tonight, we ask you that you might uh, open our hearts to your word. Help us to understand in a better way, perhaps, Lord, how great that you are and how real that you are. And I ask you, Lord, that you might speak to every person's heart, that deep down in their soul they might really understand that you are real. And we thank you, Lord, for your blessings. We ask you to be with us uh, tonight as we contemplate your word. 
In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. As I was growing up, and really even still today, I'm very interested in the science of astronomy. I mean, I, I go outside at night and I look up into the heavens and I am just awed with amazement of what God has done. And those of you, I mean, all of you, I'm sure, you, you were taught in school as I was that uh, the observable universe, what we see from right here, is just a very small part of what God has created. Uh, the universe goes on, uh, we don't even know how far, how far it extends, and uh, God is the creator of that universe. Now, this entire universe is really one of the ways that, that God has shown us that he's real. Here in Psalm chapter 19, uh, David answers the question, I think, for us, is God real? And he shows us that God is real, as I said, from two powerful and distinct ways. This psalm is divided into two sections that reveal to us the reality of God. Now, I'd like to talk to you about that tonight. The two ways in which I can say, and I hope that you can say, that my God is real. First, I would point out to you tonight that my God is real in His creation. Uh, One of the first ways, or the first way that God has communicated his reality to us is in this silent uh, language, this this silent sign language of our creation. Look at verse number 1 again. It says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. Now, the heavens that David is talking about here is just the vast expanse of the celestial bodies that we're able to see. Of course, that includes the stars, the planets that are out there, the asteroids, the moons, all heavenly bodies. David is telling us that all of these heavenly bodies declare the glory of God. Now, I want to point out some things to you tonight from God's creation that declare that God is real. First of all, the proclamation of the stars. The stars tell us that God is real. Now, do you know that that if you go out on a cloudless night, that it's actually possible for you to count about 3,000 stars. If you get up on a high place on the earth or a mountain and you look around, uh, you'll be able on a clear night to count about 3,000 stars. But we know that that's not all the stars that are out there. Because if you could get up in the, in the Hubble telescope, if you could go up there, which orbiting the earth, it would be possible for you to even count billions of stars that are out there. Now, tonight we might decide that we're going to go up on top of the building and verify the statement that there's about 3,000 stars that we can see. Maybe we might want to do that. But we know this, that God has a vast universe out there. It's filled with all these stars. And the light of those stars, scientists tell us, travels at the incredible speed of 186,000 miles per second. The closest star to us, uh, to our solar system, is the star Alpha Centauri. And that star is so far away from us that the light that you see of that star took four years, four light years, for it actually to reach your eye. And so if you go out and you spot the star Alpha Centauri tonight, that the light that you see from that star means that it left there in 2003. That's how far away the star is. And that's light traveling at 186,000 miles per second for a period of four years. And it's just mind-boggling to think about this, that the closest star to us is 26 trillion miles away. And then if that weren't enough to boggle the mind, astronomers tell us that the the evidence of the universe uh, is so vast that it contains billions of galaxies. And every galaxy is a cluster of over 100 billion stars each. 
And this galaxy in which we live, the Milky Way, which is a relatively small galaxy or a mid-sized galaxy compared to the others, that if we were to travel across our galaxy from one end to the other, that it would take us 80,000 years, light years, 80,000 light years just to make it across the galaxy that we live in. Here's something else that we know. We know that the entire universe is in a rapid state of expansion. And so that means that the stars that you see at night, they're actually moving away from from this earth at thousands of miles per second. And as we think about the magnitude of those stars, there's no doubt about what David says here when he says, the heavens declare the glory of God. But in spite of what we see out there, there are still a lot of people that are asking some sincere questions, and they really want to know, is God real? Is God just the invention of our uh, figment of our imagination? Is he um, an invention of our wishful thinking? Or is there really an intelligent being out there? Is there somebody out there who gives purpose to our life, who gives meaning to our lives? Is Is it the one who made us? Or is it, as the scientists say, that we're just a random product of chance, a chemical reactions, and that our ancestors crawled out of some primordial ooze? And people are asking the question. They wonder about it. And when scientists discovered that the universe was expanding, um, many of the scientists didn't want to agree with that. Uh, they found out or they, the scientists believed that there was this big bang, you're familiar with that, and, and that uh, the earth and everything and all the universe was contained in one dense particle of matter, and that piece of matter exploded, and so now the whole universe is hurtling away from that central source at incredible speeds. But when the scientists came up with that theory, there were some of the scientists like Albert Einstein who strongly rejected that. And they didn't reject it because they believed in God. But they rejected because that ruined their theories that matter is eternal. And if matter is not eternal, then that means that it had to come from a source. And that means that that little speck, if it was little and it did explode, where did that speck come from? Now, of course, we know the Big Bang is not true. But here's what we find, that every discovery of the scientist finds out that he's not going away from God and going away uh, and, and disproving the existence of God, but he finds himself going right in the path of the God who's created all things. Robert Jastrow, who was the founder and director of NASA's Goddard Institute for Space Studies, wrote this, For the scientist who has lived by his faith and the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. He has scaled the mountains of ignorance. He is about to conquer the highest peak, As he pulls himself over the rock, he is greeted by a band of theologians who have been sitting there for centuries. You know, it would be much better for the scientists just to go out at night and do what David did and just sit under the stars and say, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. You ever wonder sometimes how some of these scientists come up with their theories? I told you this story once before. But I heard a, about a scientist who did an experiment with frogs to see how far that frogs could jump. And so he put a frog down on a line to see how far that this frog would jump. And he jump, and he says to the frog, jump, frog. And that frog jumped about two feet. And so he recorded the data in his little book there, like the scientist does, that a frog can jump two feet. So he decided to cut off one of the frog's legs and see how far that he could jump. So he cut off one of the frog's legs and he told the frog to jump. And the frog jumped about a foot and a half. And so he recorded that in his journal, uh, a three-legged frog jumps one and a half feet. 
Then he'd cut off another leg. Now the frog's got two legs missing, and he wanted to see how far a frog could jump with two legs. And so he said, jump, frog. And the frog jumped about a foot. And so he wrote it down in a scientific journal. A two-legged frog jumps one foot. Then he cut off another leg. Now he has just a one-legged frog, and he wants to see how far a one-legged frog jumps. And so he tells the frog to jump. And the frog struggles really hard, but he does manage to jump about a half of a foot. And so the scientist records in his journal, one-legged frog jumps a half foot. So now he decides he's going to cut off the last leg. And so he has a frog with no legs now, and he speaks to the frog, and he says, Jump, frog! And the frog just sat there. And he said to the frog again, Jump, frog! And the frog sat there. So now he got insistent. Jump, frog. And the frog just sits there. And so he writes down in his journal, a frog with no legs goes deaf. (laughs) Now that's the kind of scientist that we're listening to on this evolutionary theory. I mean, this is so ridiculous. I mean, to even think about this, that the scientist doesn't even know as much as the heathen does about God. You know, when we think about heathens, we, we think about somebody who's just totally scientifically ignorant. And yet Paul said that even the heathen knows enough to know that there is a God. But now let's look at the next phrase of the verse because he uses next the word firmament, and that refers to the atmosphere. He's talking about the atmosphere that surrounds us. So next we find the proclamation of the skies. So what we have around our world now is a perfectly balanced blanket of air that shows us that God has a wise design. Did you know that if the atmosphere was much thinner than all of the millions of meteors that, that come into the earth's atmosphere, instead of burning up, they would strike the earth. And the earth would be pockmarked and it would be full of craters like the moon is full of craters. If the, if the earth's atmosphere was much thinner then every lightning bolt that struck would explode. I mean, it would strike, rather, uh, every lightning bolt at the, at the oxygen uh, content of the air was, was less than what it is, that every, or more than what it is, rather, the lightning bolts as they strike the earth, they would explode. If the atmosphere was much thinner, birds couldn't fly. If the atmosphere is much thicker, then, then we wouldn't be able to, uh, uh, to sustain the, the life as we have it here. And that's why the atmosphere of the earth is so perfectly suitable for life on this planet. And that right blanket of air supports all, uh, all the life on the planet. And the only reasonable explanation for all of that is that the skies proclaim the work of God's hands. When Jesus comes back to this earth, there, there may be people who will say, well, we didn't have enough evidence to prove that you were real, that there really is a God. And all that Christ will have to do is to point to the heavens and to point to the sky and tell us that the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament showeth his handiwork. In the Guinness Book of World Records, there's a lady mentioned there who's said to have the highest IQ of anyone in the world. And she writes now a... a, um, a column in the Parade magazine, perhaps you've seen that, and she was asked a question that if you could make a change in one of the physical laws of the universe, which kind of change would be the most beneficial? And she said, I'm afraid that if you make one change in the physical universe, that it would cause all of the other laws to topple like dominoes. Now, that's how God has so intricately designed the universe. He's perfectly balanced it to support his creation. And folks, that can't happen by accident. The odds of this happening are astronomical, and I don't intend to pun when I say that. They are astronomical. Now, this is what God has done. 
And do you know that there is no rational scientist who would ever accept the odds in any other field of study without saying it's totally impossible for this to happen than the evolutionary scientist. He admits to the impossible. Now look at verse number 2 of the text. He says, Day unto day utter the speech, and night unto night showeth knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line is gone out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. Now the next proof of God's reality is the proclamation of silent speech. Now this seems like a very odd thing for David to say because he says, Day unto day uttereth speech. And yet what David is talking about here is inanimate objects. How do you hear something from an inanimate object? And yet David says day after day, night after night, this entire universe gives evidence of this creator God and and it keeps on proclaiming and it eloquently proclaims, it endlessly proclaims all the proof that we ever need to know that God is real. No matter where you are on this planet, God is speaking to all of us in this silent sign language of creation of the universe and it tells us that God is real. And that tells us that we're not products of chance. This is not an accidental happening. We're products of a skillful mind and of a loving heart. Now we notice here in verse number 3 that the King James translators add the word where to the text. It says, there is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. And you notice there that that's in italics. And you know by now that if you see a word in italics in the King James Version, it means that that word was not originally there. The translators have supplied it. Well, here's a case where the word's not actually needed because the point that David makes here is the day and the night don't use speech or they don't use verbal language to express this, this message about God. And yet without even speaking... Still, the message of God comes across to us loudly and clearly, even though it's conveyed silently and inaudibly without words. And so ears are not needed to hear this, and yet the creation declares it. Even if you're deaf, you can know that there's a God. You hear the message of creation. Now, we go on a little bit further, and we see what David says about creation's declaration of God. In the last part of verse 4 down through verse 6, he says, In them hath he set a tabernacle for the son, which is as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, and rejoiceth as a strong man to run a race. His going forth is from the end of heaven, and his circuit unto the ends of it. There is nothing hid from the heat thereof. Now, next we have the proclamation of the son. Now, these verses might be a little bit hard for us to understand, and so we can translate it this way, that God has put the sun in the heavens, and the sun is like a mighty champion that runs his course across the sky. He goes from one end of the sky to the other, and there's nothing that escapes the heat of the sun. Now, here's what we know about the sun. The sun is so big that uh, if it were an empty sphere, that God could put hundreds of thousands of earths inside of the sun. And still God would have room to shake that around like a baby's rattle. The sun is positioned perfectly, 93 million miles from the earth. If it was any closer, we would, we would fry. If any further away, then we would freeze to death. There's no place on the earth that escapes the penetrating heat rays of the sun. I mean, even if you live on the polar ice caps, they get their share of the sun. Now, I told you a moment ago that it's possible that a person could be deaf, and yet he could still understand that there's a God through creation. There's a proclamation here. But with the sun, we even know this, that if a person is blind, he still hears the proclamation of creation because he can feel the heat of the sun. And so, deaf and blind, it doesn't matter. 
we still know that there is a God. Is God real? Well, the silent language of creation says yes, and it echoes what Paul writes in Romans chapter 1, verse 20. He says, For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal Godhead, his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Now, folks, what we have is a creator God who's put his fingerprints all over this world. All over creation, there's evidence of our God. Now, nobody could miss the evidence unless they choose simply to ignore the evidence that God is real. And you know something? God knew that people would do exactly that. That's what the scientists have done. All the evidence is there that God is real. And yet God knew, God knew that this is what would happen. People would ignore everything that is around them. And so you know what God did? He decided to reveal himself in another way, and yet a greater way. And that is that God reveals himself in his command. He reveals himself through the written word. So secondly, we see that God is real in his commands. Now, he's real in his creation, but he's also real in his commands. Peter says something very interesting in 2 Peter chapter 1, and it has bearing on, on this chapter in Psalm 19. I want you to turn there for just a moment. 2 Peter chapter 1, and I want to read, you, read this to you. But uh, Peter, James, and John had, were taken up on the, on the mountain with Christ, and there they saw Christ transfigured before them. And they saw the real glory of God. And that was just a, a tremendous, momentous occasion for Peter. And he recalls this. He remembers what happened there. But he says something. Something very interesting about the experience in verse number 16. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 16, he says, For we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And this voice which came from heaven we heard when we were with him in the holy mount. Now, Peter's talking about that experience that he had on on that mountain and actually seeing the glory of God in that way. But notice what he says in verse number 19. He says, we have also a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto ye do well that ye take heed as unto a light that shineth in a dark place until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts. Now here is an interesting thing, is that Peter saw with his own eyes the glory of God. And yet he says here, there is something more convincing than even what I've seen physically with my eyes. I know something more about God's existence than what I've seen with my eyes. And I would tell you likewise that you could look into the heavens, you can see the handiwork of God, but that is not the most convincing evidence that we have of God. Now the heavens... They, they give us some of the details about the majesty and the wonder of God. They show us that he is the creator. But what the heavens don't do, what creation does not do, it does not reveal God to us personally. The way that God comes to us personally, and we really understand his existence, is through his word. Through the written word of God. That's why Peter calls it in verse number 19... A more sure word of prophecy. So not only has God supplied us with the abundant evidence of silent revelation, 
But also God has broken through that silence. And now he speaks to us through his word. He speaks to us through the Bible. So God uses the Bible through the operation of the Holy Spirit. And we hear what he says through his word. Now, there's a very important distinction between verses 1 through 6 and verses 7 through 11. Now, you notice there in verse number 1, the word God. And in that verse, that's the Hebrew word El, E-L. And, and what that is is actually the most generic name for God or description of God that you have in the Bible. When you see that, uh, if you could look back at the Hebrew and see that, it's the Hebrew word El. And that's a perfect word for the use that David's giving it here because it describes God in a general way. Generally, God is revealed through his creation. But we notice here that David changes in verse number 7, and we see there the word Lord. And you should know by now that when you see the word Lord in all caps in the Bible, when you see that, when you see it in the King James Version, that means Jehovah. That's the personal name for God. And now David changes it, and he shows us that God reveals himself in a personal way through written revelation. Now look what he says in verse number 7. He says, The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Now what David is doing there is giving us a perfect, advanced, sequential argument for the existence of God through his written word. The Bible tells us that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. And so that means that the written Word of God is different than any book that you'll ever read. There's nothing to compare to God's Word. Here it has special properties. And when the Word of God begins to speak to you personally, that's when you have no doubt that God is real. And that's what David's describing here. Now let's look at some ways that he he talks about the word of God and what the word of God does to reveal that God is real. First, he says that God's word is perfect. Now the word perfect in the Bible means complete. David's talking about the completion of it. I mean, complete it so that it's complete and not deficient in any way. It's an all-sufficient revelation of God. And that means that we don't need any other revelations of God. Now, we speak about that. We talk about the Bible being plenarily inspired. Now, if you hear the word plenarily, actually what it means is that the Bible is perfect and complete so that there is no other revelation of God. Now, here we have this word of God that covers every area of your life. You're not going to find the word of God to be deficient in any way. It leads us from our sins. It takes us through all the problems that we have. It enables the Christian for an abundant spiritual life. The word of God is complete. It's perfect. And God's given that to us as a perfect guide. Then uh, David goes on and he says, God's word is sure. And what that means is that God's word is trustworthy. The God's word is the way to eternal life. Now you can believe what God's word says and, and the Bible will make you wise unto salvation. That's what Paul told Timothy. He said, And that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Now, the man who follows his own way is a fool. And that's why we have all these bogus theories of of evolution. I mean, uh, something that defies a scientist's own belief in, in reasonable and rational probabilities. 
I mean, a man is a fool when he follows his own reasoning because what he does is to deny the power of creation. God says, professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. So they don't have the word of God in their hearts. And the Bible says that these kind of people are ever learning and never able to come to the truth. And that's the way it seems that the scientist does, doesn't it? He keeps learning more and more. He keeps devising more theories. They keep coming up with something new. And every time that they do, they are denying the power of God that is so evident. In 1 Corinthians, Paul writes, For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? For after that in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. God's word is what makes you wise unto salvation. The third thing that David writes about, he says that God's word is right. He says the statutes of the Lord are right. Now, that doesn't really mean right as opposed to wrong. He means it in a different way. He means right as opposed to crooked and perverse. And so what he has reference to here is righteousness. God's word is perfectly righteous. And then he tells us that righteousness rejoices our heart. Then David says, fourthly, that God's word is pure. And that means that God's word is absolute truth. There is no admixture in it. Now, we look at the writings of men in which they claim have come from God. There are many of these writings out there that people say, well, we got this revealed from God. The Mormons have it in the Book of Mormon. Uh, The Jehovah Witnesses have it in the Watchtower. The Seventh-day Adventists have it in the writings of Ellen G. White. The Christian scientists have it in in the writings of Mary Baker Eddy. The Roman Catholics have it in their own dogmas and the things that they have written and all their councils and creeds and all the things that they write down. The Muslims have it in the Koran. The Buddhists have it in in their writings and the Hindus have it in the Veda. And all of them claim that these things came from God. But none of those things. Put them up next to the Holy Scriptures and they don't compare. There is no comparison. And that's because God's Word is perfect. It's perfectly preserved. We have a miracle book that God has given us. And the miracle of the Bible is just to look at how it was composed, written over 1,500 years, over a period of 1,500 years, by 40 different authors, men who at many times didn't have any idea what other people were writing, and yet we find out that when the Bible is put together, all the writings in the Bible perfectly agree in every single detail. That's not possible unless God's Word is inspired. And so that is a testimony to the inspiration, divine inspiration of God's Word. God promised that his word wouldn't fail. Jesus said that heaven and earth would pass away, but God's word would not pass away. And today I believe that we have the word of God perfectly preserved. And I believe that we have it perfectly preserved in our King James Bible. Our King James has stood the test of time. You know, there are many other Bible versions that have come out over the past hundred years. You know, there's all these different Bible versions that have come out. And in every case, they are either more or less than what God has said. Did you know that if the Bible were to keep changing like all the modern versions change, that we could have no confidence in what God has said? How could we have confidence in a changing Bible? I mean, how do we know which parts God wrote and which parts he didn't write if the Bible changes all the time? No, we have the the Bible 
uh, preserved for us. And we can have confidence in the word of God that we use. And I say that you ought to stick with the good old King James because it was translated by the greatest linguistic scholars in the history of the world. Now, all of this points to David's conclusion in verse number 10 that the Bible is to be cherished more than gold. The Bible is sweeter than anything that you could ever take into your soul. That's the more sure word of prophecy. And that's a greater testimony itself than God's work in creation. Now, friends, we think about all these glowing accolades that we have here. What David wrote, what the prophets write, what the apostles write about the Word of God. And we wonder why is it that the Word of God doesn't have a a bigger part in our lives? Why aren't we reading God's Word? Why aren't we using God's Word? And it's a travesty, it's a shame that God's people don't read the Bible when it's so valuable to us. Now, I want you to look at verses number 10 and 11 as we finish this evening. You know, John Bunyan said it very well when he said, this book will keep you from sin, or sin will keep you from its book. It's a valuable book. But look at what he says in verse number 10. He says, more to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey in the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is thy servant warned, and in keeping of them there is great reward. Now, verse number 10 actually gives us the value of truth. He says, more to be desired than gold. And you might wonder, living in a materialistic society that we're in, how could anybody say that the Bible is more valuable than what the world has to offer? How does anybody say that the Bible is more valuable than all the things that would make us materially rich? How can you say that? Well, David says it because the Word of God is so practical. It's so useful. You couldn't replace it with anything that the world has to offer. What could possibly take the place of the Bible? God uses the Word to change our lives. He uses His Word to to warn us to stay away from danger. God's Word will keep us from falling in the pit. God's Word will keep us from spending our lives in endless pursuits of things that will bring us heartache and troubles. God's Word tells us about all those things. And we think about uh, the commands that are written in God's Word. And people say, well, I don't want to follow God's Word. Uh, The commands of the Bible are too restrictive. They, They restrict my lifestyle. And yet every command that God has given is not given to restrict us, but in order that we might have a blessing. God's rules and God's commands are not given to make us miserable. When we obey God's word, it makes us more fruitful. It makes us more productive, more than we could ever be without it. Now, I want to give you your last statement for your listening sheet tonight, and that is the godly are blessed in their godliness. Now, why do I say this? Well... It says in verse number 11 that we're warned by the, by the word. And when we keep the word, there is great reward. Now, I want you to notice the way that he puts this. Because this verse does not say, it does not say that the person who keeps God's word will be rewarded. Now, there's not a truer statement that's been made than that statement. If you keep God's word, you'll be rewarded. But that's not the point that David's making here. He says, in the keeping of them, there is great reward. And what he means is that while we keep the word, while we, while we obey the commands of God, we enjoy the blessing. And so what he's actually saying is righteousness is its own reward. Now, if I could put it to you in another way, that living a wholesome, godly life feels good while you do it. Now, you know what the world says, if it feels good, do it. 
and they apply that to all the vices and they think that that's going to make them happy, they don't have any idea in the world of the joy that comes in living for Jesus. Jesus said, if you know these things, happy are ye if you do them. You remember the context of when Jesus said that? What was the context of it? It was right after Jesus washed the disciples' feet. He bent down and he washed those smelly feet. And then he turned to the other disciples and he told them to go and wash the other disciples' feet. And he said, you'll be happy if you do this. Now, people look at that and they say, well, who in the world could be happy washing smelly, sweaty, dirty feet? How could you be happy doing that? And you know, that's the paradox of the Christian life. What the world says that they will never do and what the world says will never make them happy. Jesus says this is the thing that brings his people the greatest joy. Now, friends, I want to tell you, my God is real. He's real in my soul. I think the songwriter wrote it well. He said, my God is real, real in my soul, for he has washed and he has cleansed and made me whole. His love for me is like pure gold. My God is real, for I can feel him deep in my soul. And that's really the whole point of my message tonight. And that is, you know God is real when you feel him deep in your soul. And the way that you feel him is through the knowledge of your personal salvation in Jesus Christ. That's how you know that God is real. I want to ask you, can you feel him deep in your soul? If you do, then there's no doubt at all that God is real. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this word, for the revelation that David has given us here, how he's broken this out to where he declares about the the greatness of the Creator God creating this universe and how we're so much aware of who you are because of creation. But then he shows us, Lord, that that's not the greatest way to know that you're alive, that you're real. The greatest way to know is what you've given us in your word. And this word of God becomes alive and it becomes real and living to us when the Son of God lives in our heart. I ask you, Lord, if there's someone here who doesn't know you as Savior, that they might understand the reality through faith in you. Lord, we pray that you might bless our people, bless every Christian here tonight to understand. Help us to know better that our God is real. And we want to live for him because he's real. And he's made that reality a part of our very own souls. Blessing this invitation tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.